You're listening to Changemakers Without Borders. I'm your host and producer, Mike Cooper, and this is the final episode of the new four-part series with Professor Tara Brookfield from the University of Wilfrid Laurier in Ontario, as well as the author of Our Voices Must Be Heard, a book on the history of the fight for women's rights in Canada, and the author of a book about children's rights and the activist women who took care of them in the World Wars and the Cold War on the Canadian side called Cold War Comforts, Canadian Women, Child Safety, and Global Insecurity. Let's jump right in. From your book, I also read that uh, you touch on the subject of the complexity of uh, Indigenous women's rights to vote, and it was even more, it was even harder for them to vote than for men uh, who are Indigenous, because even if they would have... Um, gave up their status from what I understood they weren't able to vote anyway or their kids weren't able to if they married a white man? There were many ways in which the different legal mechanisms made things worse for Indigenous women. Uh, for example, if they married someone who did not have status, they would lose theirs automatically. So by marriage, they no longer were able to keep their identity and then they had no rights to, or their children had no rights to um, things that could have come to them based on their status. When white women got the vote in Canada, um, the restrictions based on the different provinces still stood in place uh, racially. So in British Columbia, that meant that Japanese and Canadian women, or excuse me, Japanese and Chinese women were not able to vote because BC was prohibiting that based on their, their discriminatory laws. Um, as well, Indigenous women in Ontario, as everywhere in Canada, were not able to get the vote because both men and women who were Indigenous could not get the vote because of their, because of the Indian Act, unless they gave up their status. The only uh, Indigenous people who could vote in that period were veterans who, because of their military service in the First World War, they were able to override the Indian Act or any other restrictions about voting based on age, British subject. Um, and so Indigenous men who voted in the period were military veterans from the First World War, but that could be controlled by the Indian agent on the reserve who might have still prohibited veterans. And it didn't apply to women, with the exception of one woman who I write about in my, vote, uh, in my book who was a military nurse, the only Indigenous military nurse on the Allied side um, who was from Canada. She was the only Indigenous person in Ontario to keep the vote until the early 1950s when all Indigenous um, men and women got the right to vote, uh, provincially at least, and then federally a little bit later. And you you also touch on the subject of uh, women, indigenous women's rights uh, in their uh, in their tribe or in their uh, society. Um, was it true that women were able to overrule a chief's decision over a sale of a property? Um, so in that particular example, that was one particular indigenous nation in which it, um, so I, I should start by saying that just like we can't generalize about women or that many indigenous cultures had a variety of different political systems of organization and had different understandings of gender. Uh, what the Europeans noticed when they came was that it wasn't, it was different than how they had been organized for the most part. There was often more flexible ideas about marriage and divorce and sex. And that in certain communities, particularly those that were organized matrilineal, which means you trace your ancestry through the mother's family, or matrilocal, which means when you marry, you move into your mother's home, not your mother-in-law's 
work for the women. It would be the fathers, the husbands move into their, their wives' mothers' home. Those societies tended to have more political responsibilities given to the women. So that example in regards to property had to do with um, the Six Nations of the of the Grand River, or the, the Six Nations in, in general, the community that I studied most in my book was the, the Grand River community. And they have a very strong um, system of clan mothers in which women representing the various clans had, could uh, elected the chief, could decide, for example, um, when the community would go to war or not, because the women were responsible for agriculture. And so they could decide, well, we don't have enough food to go into war, for example. So they really respected women's opinions. And in one case, um, I believe this was a New York, a New York Six Nations group in which the, the chief wanted to sell the land and um, the women overruled him because both as their power as clan mothers and as uh, property, as, as responsible for food and land and as protectors of the water, they had the final say in that decision and were able to overrule the chief. They could also, in some cases, if a chief wasn't living up to the expectations, they could call for a chief's removal, which would have been very different for um, the settler women at the time would not have that same uh, respect. Does it still work like that with the Grand River Six Nations? Uh, well, the Six Nations have had an incredible history of resistance from both men and women to the colonial system. And today, the, 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 the community has both an elected council, which is based on the federal government's rules for, for governing reserves. So they, they follow so a similar governance structure to, to non-Indigenous reserves or communities. Uh, but they still have a traditional council based on the pre-colonial ways of governing that has existed throughout this period, often in defiance of the federal laws that said you have to disband. And th that uh, sometimes the community is split in which, which government they want to support, the traditional government, which has a strong matrilineal uh, governance and, and clan mothers, or the elected council, which is sort of the official government of Canada recognized government. And so it, it, it still exists um, and the community um, moves on with both of these um, these groups that are often in contention. Uh, it's my understanding. And I think that just shows the resilience of the traditional ways of, of organizing um, throughout all the laws and violence that has um, caused so much damage to, to indigenous traditions and lives. Staying on the same vein as government, as you just mentioned, but on a completely different subject. Do you believe in government posing gender equality laws or posing laws that instead encourage meritocracy? I think that would be interesting to, to see. Does that type of line process um, produce equitable hiring? I think maybe until we get to that point, I think we have to recognize that despite you know, almost 100 years of, of voting rights for women and a lot more progress in, in different areas that still not all Canadians have the same opportunities, whether based on where you live, based on your ability. Um, and to get, before you even get to the resume stage, you might not have had the same networking abilities or the same support or mentorship that allowed you to get to the same place or the person 
reviewing the material might say, oh, well, you went to this university, so I'm going to favor you because of my alumni ties. So I think it's difficult to assume that that would put everyone on the same level. I know, for example, um, in my own workplace in universities, um, we do extensive sort of application process, so we can't keep people's identity, identity sort of protected for faculty jobs. You get like a whole binder of resources of all their publications, their writings, their CV, their reference letters. And so we we know we know who that candidate is. Um, and it's a small they're smaller communities. So you might say, well, all the candidates have a PhD, so they're all equally qualified for the job. But if the people in the department um, I think we often like to we we connect with things that are familiar to us. So I might see someone, for example, who has a suffrage publication on their book and I'm immediately, or on their CV and immediately drawn to that because that's my area. In the same way that I think I might, like the things that interest me. And so we, we often tend to hire in things that are complementary to each other. Like, oh, well, that person's going to get along in our department really well because, you know, we, we, we want that. So we hire often similar. And if your department is already maybe all people who have similar uh, skin color, similar uh, ideas on spirituality, similar ideas, gender, what, like, you might be, you might not read on the CV, this, or you might not interpret the data in the same way. So I think until we can eliminate biases, that uh, there's no perfect system. So in some cases, I think having diversity, excuse me, diversity initiatives and attention to that does help create more diverse workplaces that would allow in the future, I think, um, a meritocracy to be um, applicable, but I, I feel we're not there yet. There's still biases would still slip in. Using a general brush stroke, do you feel that there still is biases against women in the West? I think there there's there's sort of there's individual biases uh, about women that still exist um, in, in individual people's behavior. There's wider um, structural issues that still for men and women, that they're not necessarily able to live the lives that they're always wanted, that want to, that there's assumptions about what's masculine and what's feminine and appropriate ways to behave and appropriate futures that still could use more neutral, I think, opportunities for both. However, there has been great achievements and laws protecting women and a lot of activism to, to create changes. So. Canada is in a better position, certainly, than, than other countries. Um, but I think there's, there's ways to go in, in pay equity and in, in understanding that many workplaces, despite being open to women, are still not necessarily family-friendly in terms of hours or um, the sexual violence and domestic violence still happens more often to, to women. Um, so what, what can we do? To, to ensure that both men and women have equal opportunities and feel safe and protected. I think that there's still ways we could improve that. Well, I, I know that some of your expertise, Professor Brookfield, uh, relates to maternity leave. And, uh, well, of course, you, you wrote a book on women's rights. But um, what, what would you say is the biggest issue that we have with maternity leave? And you were mentioning hours uh, for having more family time. Uh, how do you think it's handled in the U.S. and Canada? Those are two really different examples. Canada is fortunate enough to have um, sort of a practice that every Canadian, regardless of their, their workplace, like can take um, 
sort of can take maternity leave and then parental leave. And that the parental leave is open to both the, the mothers and, and the fathers. And that can be up to 18 months right now to have financial compensation to take a step away from your, your work. And I think that is very helpful and is, has improved in my lifetime from six months to a year to, to 18 months. So I think that is, um, that is very good. I know some Scandinavian countries go up to two years and the, <clears throat> there's more evidence in those countries of men taking more time even though we have the option of parental leave, it's not always um, seen as still something that, that dads take as much as the women for that portion. The United States is in a much different position in which um, there's very little leave time protected for all workers. And many women are forced to return back to for economic security like after six weeks, which makes, um, and then having to pay for childcare on top of that. So that is um, incredibly difficult if you, um, are looking to continue, for example, breastfeeding, if you're trying to bond with your baby, trying to, 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 to have that time to, to have to give up immediately the time with your baby to recover from your birth, to be able to, to, to nurse effectively and not have to worry about pumping all the time, for example. These are things that the maternity leave protects in, in Canada and compared to the U.S. Well, there is, a, there is a very big question in regards to marriage and how marriage is, uh, you know, men, there are less and less people getting married. Um, the divorce rate is high as well, uh, but it's also go- getting lower because just people are not getting married as much. Uh, do you think that it, what are, what are the effects of that? And uh, what are your thoughts on uh, cohabitation versus marriage and what gives more protection to the children and uh, to the both partners involved? Um, that's an interesting question. I'll, f- I'll first go back to a little bit of history. It was very difficult to obtain a divorce in Canada until the 1960s. Um, provinces had very different rules, but generally you needed to have um, evidence of infidelity or madness, for example, things that were difficult to prove or there was a lot of stigma attached to it. And it was more common that people would live apart or leave their partner rather than go through the official channels of divorce. So I think when we say the divorce rate skyrocketed, people were separating before, but we don't have, we don't track those statistics necessarily in the same way because the data is not available. But certainly when it became a lot easier and accessible to divorce, people took advantage of that. And I think that's sort of a subject that really interesting to understand our society's compulsion towards monogamy. Um, does it actually work and create happiness? We know for a lot of people it does, but I don't necessarily think that's the be all end all for, for relationships or for, for good families. I guess Laura McDonald Dennison would, would um, have opinions on that too. I think giving people options, I think is good. So the idea that you can still, for example, have share custody laws or uh, child support, even if you're not in a marital relationship, if you're common law, um, that your common law has often, in many cases, unless it's a more stricter religious views, has is seen as quite normal and respectful in Canada. And I know a lot of people choose not to marry because they feel the state has no place sort of in a personal relationship, or they... I don't think people don't marry because they're just waiting to see what happens. I think we know marriage is not a solution for happiness or we wouldn't be having so many divorces. Um, So I think giving people options in and out of relationships 
and releasing the stigma, I think, helps people find the right partners at the time for them. What for you would be an ideal world in matter of uh, uh, laws that, in, in regards to child custody and uh, making sure that men and women are, are being treated equally in that respect and that the party that is, um, is in the wrong uh, it could be the man, it could be the woman, that, that they are... It, it's, it's a very difficult question. It's hard to, to put in, in, in exactly the right words. But what, what would be an ideal world uh, to protect children? Well, I think the history of custody has for so long offered favored one group over the other. Initially, um, in the 19th century, up until the 1960s, it was often men who were favored for custody. Because, um, because of the divorce laws, if a woman, it, it was so difficult to divorce that if it happened, often it was because the man was choosing to do so and was casting the wife as, a, as an immoral person. So the judge automatically gave custody to the men in these earlier periods. Um, single women didn't have the economic resources they do as they do now in a pre-welfare state, in a, pre, in a world that didn't allow women sort of access to all the same jobs no child care. So the, the idea that a single mother could take care of her child up until the 1960s was, was, was considered crazy. And so the fathers would be getting custody in this earlier period. Mm-hmm. Um, then we enter the period where we have um, divorce becoming more common. There is um, supports for people. There's socialized medicine. There's more women working since the Second World War in, in sort of full-time paid positions. Uh, so the idea of a single mother isn't so unusual and this is when judges begin to favor women as being more maternal better with the children and we see dads losing custody i think we're actually in a much better position now most custodial the majority of custodial agreements are shared custodial agreements today unless there's cases of like court orders in which there's reasons for abuse and those have been taken away that since sort of the 2000s it's been almost sort of equal or a shared custody, or even if one of the parents has um, primary residence, like they have that they're the custodial parent that the other person is seeing them, um, it's a shared custody situation. So I think there has been much more, less gender bias in the last two decades in regards to automatically assuming the dad or the mom is the best parent and seeing successful cases of, of shared custody, um, also providing good evidence that that Having both parents active in a child's life um, it is is ideal, not alienating one or the other. And uh, you were you were mentioning about monogamy that uh, we should look at more options, uh, so open relationships, perhaps polyamory, uh, or other sorts of relationships that are um, perhaps gaining more exposure in the West uh, today. What would you say is the best? I don't know if the best is the right word, but uh, yeah, the the best type of relationship for children in matter of uh, children's safety and children's protection. I don't, I don't think there is the best. I think if you have two consenting adults who are happy and if they're going to be the caregivers of children that they put their children's needs first, it doesn't matter if they have an open relationship like uh, with other couples or um, I think, for example, one of my other areas of research is the history of adoption and children's child welfare. 
And so I know through my teaching and research on those topics that, for example, there was such controversy over having like um, gay parents adopt children and could, you know, two men or two women raise children and all the controversy. And most uh, research shows that adopted children are quite happy in same-sex households. So the stigmas we had about that in the past have proved that those children grew up to be resilient and happy and kind in every type of household. I think having the relationship status of the parents is not the most important factor that you can have lousy parents in all types of relationships. And I think as long as you have parents who are committed to their children's well-being, whether they're married, whether they're common law, whether they're separated, whether they have multiple partners is not necessarily um, indicative of what their parenting skills would be like. Um, and in regards to, well, we're kind of talking about monogamy and polyamory and it, um, and you were also men mentioning uh, the LGBTQ plus uh, community. Do you think that uh, the, for example, specifically uh, trans transgender uh, people, do they pose any kind of threat on women's rights uh, as a whole? Uh, for example, uh, there have been new cases of uh, transgender women who were in races or uh, in, you know, national races and they won because biologically um, they were they were able to perform at a bigger scale than the women there. I think sort of my version of feminism is giving people opportunities and that men and women should have the opportunities to um, achieve safe lives, happy lives um, in an equal manner. And so I, I, I would apply that to trans men and, and women too. And I, I, I think there is, I'd also want feminism to ensure that those more vulnerable have equal rights. And I'm much more concerned about sort of violence against trans people or stereo prejudice and um, discrimination against trans people than I am about pro sports. Maybe I'm speaking of this as someone who, who, who's not like interested in competitive sports very often. And I think that trans people and sort of cisgendered people can be allies together and find creative solutions for issues about public spaces and bathrooms that we don't have to be on opposite ends that maybe the, the, the future will look different than it does now in terms of sports. Maybe it'll be more like boxing where you box by weight classes. Maybe there'd be different types of classes for competing in sort of sports that could be not gender-based that could address people's different body, the, the bodies they have at birth being assigned typically to, to different heights or weights or, or physical strengths. I think we just need to get creative and think about um, the idea that there's there's people who identify as non-binary and, and I think the more understanding that men and women are not these two categories, um, that men can be soft and nurturing and women can be hard on. But the idea that I think if we could expand our ideas of what's masculine and what's feminine or just eliminate those binaries and just allow people to be who they are, follow their passions, follow their pursuits without being categorized as, as one way or the other will allow, I think, a more content happy society who will be willing to work with people who are who present differently than than each other. So what would you say are some questions that we need to be asking about human rights in general? What would be the main issues that we should be um, fighting for 
uh, right now? I really, well, I think it's important to still interrogate issues related to, to gender, um, to understand how issues of gender and, and race are intertwined. Race is like an artificial category sort of assigned by scientists in the past, um, but its ideas affects the racism we live in today. And so I think civil rights are incredibly important and we're seeing such uh, racism existing um, and being tolerated in a way, I think today that, so I, I feel like racial discrimination and the violence, white supremacy is a major human rights issue that becomes intertwined with gender. I think climate change is a human rights issue that I think being more environmentally sensible about our planet um, will help protect people's lives and livelihoods. Um, the, sort of a revolution of the economy and distributing wealth will bring about more human rights and ending poverty. And gender would be intertwined in all of these, these issues in certain ways about looking about fairness, but our world is facing some serious crises right now that are um, impacting individuals' lives, communities' lives, and I think the entire planet. So I think keeping a human rights-centered agenda when dealing with all of these issues um, and attacking these broader structural concerns will, will help improve human rights. What would you suggest uh, young women and men today and youth um, to do if they would want to go into this subject of fighting for human rights and uh, women's rights, men's rights? Um, yeah, what, what would be some things that, that you found in your work uh, that helped you? Um, I'll say at the top that they probably don't need me to tell them something. The, the youth, young people today are incredibly smart and bright um, and, and are very awoke to, to problems in the world. If I had to say, I would, I would say pay attention to your history because some of the problems we're facing today have long histories to it. it they weren't born overnight. People have been concerned about the environment since like the early 20th century about how our, our industrial industrialized world has has impacted the, our, our planet. Look to history to see just to know your history before you you, you know start your activism or or start your legislation and, and not assume that things learn from the past. Understand how things have changed to help inform what you move forward. Read widely read fiction, nonfiction, learn about other people's experiences, develop empathy for, for others, challenge yourself to get out of your comfort zones. If you're really particularly interested in human rights, human diversity, it's a degree you could study at my university that sort of looks at it at both at a Canadian and global scale. So that's, you know, higher education is not the only pathway to, to being a great human rights educator, often being inspired by the inequalities in your own life, in your own community, um, that's, that's an important education that, that can inform activism. So I have a, a great hope that the, the young people of the world will figure things out and um, will, will improve the world from sort of my generation, older generations. Um, there's always ways to, to do better. Well, I thank you so much for your time, Professor Brookfield. And I really feel touched that with this message that you have been just saying um, it's true, uh, young people they are the future and I believe that they can create um, something from nothing they can bring a 
about uh, a completely new revolution that we have not seen in history. Um, and as an avid history reader, I really resonated with what you said about reading history and learning from history's mistakes. Um, we do not do that enough, uh, young and old, and it's an opportunity uh, to do so, especially with the economy and COVID-19, with the way things uh, are looking, it seems as if it's an opportunity for a reset. Yes, well, thank you for having me an opportunity to talk about both the past and present. I rarely get to never talk about anything about current days. So uh, thanks for tackling the subject on your podcast. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Changemakers Without Borders. I'm your host and producer, Mai Cooper, and this was the fourth and final episode of the new series about the fight for women's rights in Canada with Professor Tara Brookfield. Thanks for lending your ears.